good thing we have air now. 3.30 in the afternoon, end of a conference, metaphysical topic. We're going to need some cold air. I hope not to bore you. I, I intend not to. I think it's interesting. Since the theme of beauty appears only occasionally in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, and in even those passages is regularly addressed only in an indirect way, it is notable that this topic has enjoyed considerable attention from modern interpreters of St. Thomas. These interpreters have delved into the heart of St. Thomas's account of beauty, bringing together its scattered elements into a coherent whole, filling in the gaps inherited from St. Thomas and exploring its possibilities. One of the fundamental elements of this project, and one that has not gone unnoticed, has been the question of whether beauty or the beautiful is a distinct transcendental. Now here I should point out that I'm gonna use the beautiful predominantly. Thomas, um, when he's talking about this topic, generally uses pulchrum rather than pulchritudo. Um, so there are occasions where he'll use pulchritudo. I'm just gonna say the beautiful, generally speaking, so forgive my going back and forth. This question about beauty as a transcendental was widely debated among early neotomists and continues to be disputed today. The source of this dispute lies in the seemingly con conflicting nature of the relevant passages from St. Thomas's writings. In his discussions of the transcendentals, most importantly in his derivations of the transcendentals from being, he never mentions the beautiful, whereas in other texts he seems to affirm that the beautiful is a transcendental. Various explanations have been presented as solutions to this conundrum. Across the spectrum of neotomist commentators, the solutions provided are, in their details, nearly as many as the scholars themselves, owing in no small part to both the paucity of texts directly dealing with beauty and the ambiguity of many of these texts. By far, the greater number of Thomists who have written on this subject are of the mind that the beautiful is a transcendental. However, it seems to me that many of the explanations given by these scholars fail to construct from St. Thomas's text a satisfactory argument for the beautiful as a distinct transcendental. And in large part, this seems due to a failure to attend sufficiently to St. Thomas's understanding of the transcendentals. So, since the purpose of this paper is to determine whether, according to St. Thomas, the beautiful is a distinct transcendental, I think it necessary to begin not with his account of beauty, but with his account of the transcendentals. To this end, rather than examining the primary texts of St. Thomas one by one, which can get tedious, and for other reasons actually, I will present a synthesis of his argument, indicating as I go along the texts that I think not only state the various propositions of his argument, but also support my reconstruction of the argument. And having recourse, to direct textual elucidation according as one text or another is particularly significant for the point in question. In doing so, I will elucidate the properties or characteristics that the transcendentals possess as transcendentals. This will constitute the first part of the paper. In the second part, I'll examine St. Thomas's understanding of the nature of the beautiful insofar as it is relevant to the question of its status as a transcendental. I will first present and scrutinize those texts that reveal the nature of beauty or the beautiful, with attention especially to those that discuss the relation of the beautiful to the good or to the true. In the third part, I will draw together the conclusions of the first two parts and present my conclusion, after which I will raise several objections and reply to them. And those parts are indicated in the handout. 
So part one, St. Thomas' Doctrine of the Transcendentals. In order to determine whether St. Thomas considers the beautiful to be a transcendental, it is necessary first to ascertain what, for St. Thomas, constitutes a transcendental. And I should point out here that Thomas uses a lot of different words to speak of the transcendentals. Um, he speaks of nomina, transcendentia, or just transcendentia sometimes, maxime communia, prima entia. There are lots of ways he, um, he says it. I'm going to refer to them as transcendentals. There are some scholars who object to that as a post-Thomistic thing to do, but I'm not going to worry about that. The first thing that should be noted is that much like the text in which he discusses beauty, St. Thomas seems always to introduce his discussions of the transcendentals as a way of answering a further question, such as the nature of truth, the nature of the good, or the order of the divine names. This greatly complicates our task, since reconstructing St. Thomas's argument regarding the transcendentals on the basis of such texts will always involve asking the question, is St. Thomas's account here complete? More particularly, is the list that he gives here of the transcendentals an exhaustive list? More about this later, but it's important to keep this caveat in mind from the outset. So part one, or subpart, I have A here in the paper, but it's one on your handout, I think. The other transcendentals like ends being, extend to every being. In his most famous presentation of the transcendentals, De Veritate, uh, question one, article one, St. Thomas begins with being, or ends, and proceeds to derive the names that express modes of being consequent upon every being. However, his procedure in two other significant texts seems to be different. He begins with one or more of the transcendentals as extending to every being, and from this starting point, proceeds to do what he does in De Veritate 1.1, namely determine the way in which such transcendentals add to being, and in so doing, show how the transcendentals are derived from being. Thus, in these two other texts, which are De Veritate 21.1 and uh, De Potentia 9.7, reply to objection six. Uh, in these texts, the coextensiveness of various transcendentals with ends is taken as the given, the fundamental premise of the argument. Upon further examination, however, the seemingly a priori derivation of the other transcendentals from ends in De Veritate 1.1 does in fact rest upon at least the possibility of such coextensiveness. Thus, I take it that this is the starting point for St. Thomas's general argument regarding the transcendentals. To express it in toto, certain names, such as bonum or verum, express something real that extends to every being, that is, that it, um, is divided into the 10 categories. St. Thomas expresses this in varying ways in different contexts. In the De Veritate, he says that the good applies to any being and that the true is coextensive with being. In the disputed questions on the virtues in general, he says of the transcendentals that they, can, that they encompass every being. Circum eunt omne ends is his word, his words. And finally, in the first book of his commentary on the sentences, St. Thomas says that the transcendental names as regards their supposit versus their meaning are and he, these are his words, always present together. Nec unquam derelinquunt se. It's a strange formulation. So the second 
point or part, uh, point B. The other transcendentals add to being only conceptually. This coextensiveness of the other transcendentals with being determines the way in which they add to being. These transcendentals cannot add anything real to being. They cannot add something that is outside the ratio of being, for nothing can add to being in this way. Nor can they add something that is potentially contained within the ratio of being, thereby limiting or determining being, such as the, the way the categories add to being. For in that case, they would no longer be coextensive with being. Therefore, if these transcendentals add to being at all, and surely they must, for otherwise they would be mere synonyms of being, then they must add to being something merely conceptual. For St. Thomas, this means they must add either a negation, this is, the what, this is what unum adds, or they add a conceptual relation, and this is what verum and bonum add. And, of course, they must add something that follows upon every being. So that by such addition, the transcendentals express general modes of being that are consequent upon every being, but not expressed by the word being. There's a lot of being in that sentence, sorry. To my knowledge, there are two texts in which St. Thomas lays out this argument explicitly, De Veritate 21.1, and in a truncated form, De Potentia 9.7, reply to objection six. However, although a close consideration of this argument is wonderfully fruitful and worthwhile in itself, we cannot linger over it here. The important point is this. In his account of the transcendentals, St. Thomas assumes their coextensiveness with being. And on this basis, that is, by ruling out their adding to being in a way that would contract it, he concludes the transcendentals add to being only conceptually. Ratione, he says. You can say add in reason or by reason, conceptually. So the third point. The other transcendentals add to being conceptually in a determinate order. As St. Thomas makes clear on several occasions, the other transcendentals make their conceptual addition to being in a de determinate order. Rather than each transcendental being constituted by unconnected conceptual additions to being, each transcendental, in fact, proceeds from being in order determined by its ratio. First in the order, of course, is being, since it is that to which all the other transcendentals add. Following being is one, unum, which adds to being only a negation, namely the negation of non-division. Because one adds a negation rather than a relation, and because the negation of non-division added by one is presupposed for the relations constituted by true and good, one is nearest to being for St. Thomas. This is an appropriate point at which to provide a more detailed explanation of the way in which the true and the good add to being, especially because the relationship of the beautiful to the true and the good will be crucial for understanding whether it's a distinct transcendental. According to St. Thomas's account in De Veritate 1.1, the true and the good add to being a mode of being following upon every being as considered in relation to another. The true adds to being the relation of convenientia or agreement that obtains between being and the intellect, 
and the good adds to being the relation of conveniencia that obtains between being and the appetite. What St. Thomas means by this is actually explained in greater detail later in the De, in the De Veritate, 21, um, Article 1. And here's what he says there. Since the true and the good must add to being only conceptually, and since they add a relation to being, that relation must be merely conceptual. That is, he spent some time figuring this out, a relationship of the perfective to the perfectible and not vice versa. But in what sense is ends perfective? For St. Thomas, ends can be perfective in two ways. First, any being is perfective of intellect according to the ratio of its species. Put in reverse order, the intellect is perfected in perceiving the ratio of a being. Being as perfective in this way is what the true adds to ends. Second, any being is perfective not only according to the ratio of its species, but also according to the being, or he says the essay, that it has in the nature of things. And to that extent, it, stand, it stands to the appetite as an end. Being as perfective in this way is what the good adds to being. Given this, how are we to understand his point that the true and the good are posterior to the one? In De Veritate 21.3, St. Thomas states that the true is contained in the good, but not vice versa. Since the good perfects not only according to a being's specific ratio, but also according to the being, the essay, the act of being, <clears throat> that it has in the thing. The good then adds conceptually to the true. But the true itself presupposes and thus adds to the one, or unity, unum. Insofar as nothing is intelligible, that is, nothing can be in a relationship of conveniencia with the intellect, except insofar as it is one. This non-division of being, its oneness having been established, so to speak, true and good can then follow in that order. So one is included in both the true and the good. Therefore, as St. Thomas concludes, the order of the transcendentals is the following. First is being, after which is one, then true, and finally good, or the good. It's hard saying this in English, unum. It's just easier to say unum, verum, bonum, but I don't want to say, say too many Latin words, so I'll try to use the English when I can. The critical point here is that the other transcendentals do not arbitrarily add to being. It is not as if the transcendentals follow upon or proceed from being as planes do from a factory, one after another with no relation of dependence existing between any of them. Rather, the order of the transcendentals is based upon the ratio of each of the transcendentals so that they follow upon being in a logical order. The order of the transcendentals is like the making of a pearl. If some foreign object, say a grain of sand, gets trapped in a mollusk, that grain of sand slowly becomes covered layer by layer with a substance secreted by the mollusk, each layer building upon the last. Just so, the transcendentals begin with being as the first, with the other transcendentals following in determinate logical order, building upon and presupposing those that come before, so that being always remains at the center of the transcendentals. 
Like each layer of pearl, each transcendental depends upon those that come before it. For those transcendentals that are prior in the order of the transcendentals to the one in question are included in the understanding of the posterior transcendental. Now you may object to the pearl example. Perhaps many of you would prefer the example that would be more Aristotelian succession of geometric figures in De Anima 2.3. That's also a pretty good example, but I thought I'd give you something more concrete. So what St. Thomas is claiming in De Veritate 21.3 is that each of the transcendentals adds not just to being, but to all the transcendentals that are logically prior to it. It is not as if one transcendental adds X to being, another one adds Y, another one Z. Rather, one transcendental adds X, the next adds Y to X and being, the next adds Z to Y, X and being. In this way, uh, unum presupposes being and adds to being a negation of division. True, or the true, presupposes both being and the one and adds to these a relation to the intellect. And finally, the good, like the outermost layer of the pearl, presupposes and builds upon all the others. Okay, the fourth point. The other transcendentals are really identical with convertible with, and merely conceptually distinct from being and each other. Because the other transcendentals add to being only something conceptual, they differ from being and from each other only conceptually, and are really identical with being and with each other. Therefore, they're convertible with being and with each other. St. Thomas expresses this in various ways, and here I'll resort to the Latin. Secundum rem, or realiter, or secundum suppositum, or parasensium, he uses all these terms. In those ways, the other transcendentals are one with, the same as, convertible with being and with each other. However, secundum rationem, or secundum intentionem, according to their meaning, they differ from being and from each other, insofar as they add a notion, a ratio. And here is one particularly striking expression of this taken from his commentary on the sentences. These names, here he speaks of them as names, nomina, being good, one, true, according to supposit, are convertible with each other and are the same in supposit, nor are they ever apart from each other. But according to their meanings, being is prior to the others, which add to being not indeed some nature, but a notion. It should be pointed out that St. Thomas argues for the real identity, merely conceptual difference, and convertibility among all the transcendentals, not on the basis of their proceeding in a determinate order, such as to add conceptually to all the preceding transcendentals, but merely on the basis of their adding something merely conceptual to being. But more concretely, I suppose, the fourth point here that I list follows in St. Thomas's mind from the second point, not from the third. Um, precisely because the other transcendentals add to being merely a ratio following upon every being, right, the second point or the second element of the argument, they are really identical with and convertible with not only being but also with each other, and that's precisely the fourth point. This does not depend intrinsically on the transcendentals proceeding from being in a determinate order. At least there's no text I could find in St. Thomas where there's a dependence there. Nevertheless, 
it does seem to me that the order in which the transcendentals proceed from being should still be considered the third element of his argument rather than the fourth. Um, since it describes the nature of the conceptual addition to being, which is the second element of the argument, whereas the real identity and convertibility and merely conceptual difference among the transcendentals is the consequence of the second element. In addition, although St. Thomas nowhere says this, it, is even, it seems to me it's even, it's even easier to see how the transcendentals are really identical and convertible with each other if they are constituted by successive conceptual additions to being. What I mean is this, since there's only a conceptual difference between the good and being, and since the good is farthest removed from being in the logical order of the transcendentals, then there must be, a fortiori, only a conceptual difference between the good and every other transcendental, which is closer to the good than being is. But Thomas never says that. It just seems to me appropriate. So to summarize part one, St. Thomas' doctrine of the transcendentals, as far as I can reconstruct it, begins with the fact that there are some names, what can be called transcendentals, or what are called transcendentals, that signifies something that extends to every being. He argues from this universal extension to the purely conceptual nature of their addition to being. He identifies a determinate order of their addition to being and to each other. And he concludes on the basis of their purely conceptual addition to being that these other transcendentals are really identical and convertible with being and with each other. Part two. Even more than his discussion of the transcendentals, or discussions of the transcendentals, those passages in which St. Thomas speaks of beauty are terse presentations that serve a larger purpose, usually responding to an objection to a position St. Thomas is taking regarding the good. So once again, we have to construct a synthetic account from St. Thomas's various statements. To that end, I will begin by considering St. Thomas's definitions used loosely, descriptions of beauty, uh, proceed to identify the constituents of beauty itself, and distinguish between two kinds of beauty, thereby identifying and attending to beauty as a candidate for the status of a distinct transcendental. Why this order, it might be asked. I have two reasons for it. First, the proper order of presentation is not crucial here, whereas it was crucial in the case of the transcendentals. It's not really a reason, that's more of a, I don't know, a defense mechanism, maybe. Second, a real reason, uh, in the Summa, Prima Pars, question five, article four, reply to objection one, which was quoted earlier today by Dr. George, I think you quoted this, St. Thomas provides a kind of definition of beauty from its effects, it seems to me, and on that basis proceeds to identify proportion or consonantia, proportia, he puts it as that in which beauty consists. So I take it that at least the first two steps of my procedure here are textually justifiable. Moving from the definition or description of beauty to the constituents of beauty. The remaining steps will, I hope, proceed naturally from the first two. St. Thomas's most famous account of beauty is found in the Summa, the text I just mentioned. Um, Question five, article four, reply to objection one. In distinguishing between the beautiful and the good, St. Thomas states that the beautiful pertains to the cognitive power and consists in due proportion. 
because we call those things beautiful that, upon being seen, please us. This is St. Thomas's most famous, and in virtue of its ubiquity, perhaps his favorite, description of the beautiful, quae visa placent. But I think a clearer and a more fruitful description of the beautiful can be found later in the Summa, Prima Secundae, question 27, article 1, again a reply to an objection. And here's the quote. Beautiful is that the very apprehension of which pleases. Id cuius ipsa apprehensio placet. Taken together, these two replies to objections give us the following account of the beautiful. The beautiful is distinguished from the good in that the good is that which all things desire and therefore is of the nature of the good that appetite rests in it as in an end. Whereas it is of the nature of the beautiful that appetite rests in the sheer apprehension of it. This can be via sight or hearing or intellect or some combination of intellect and cognitive senses. The beautiful then adds to the good a certain ordering to the cognitive power, and thus properly pertains to formal causality rather than final. More particularly, precisely because the mere apprehension of the beautiful pleases, that is, gives the appetite rest or sets it at rest, the beautiful most properly stands in relation to the cognitive power, not the appetitive power. Although this is not to say, of course, that the beautiful has no relation to the appetitive power. Far from it. So let's follow the details of St. Thomas's argument here. Beautiful things are those things that please us in our sheer apprehension of them. What then is it in such things that makes them pleasing to the powers of apprehending, that is, to the cognitive faculties? It is their due proportion because the senses and every other cognitive power take delight in things that are duly proportioned. According to St. Thomas here, um, and here I'm going back to the, the prima pars um, passage, all cognitive powers take delight in things that have due proportion because in that respect and to that extent, the things taken delight in are similar to the cognitive powers themselves. All cognitive powers as duly proportioned faculties as consisting in a kind of proportion, delight in objects that likewise display due proportion. Let me just point something out in this regard. All cognition requires a certain proportion between the knowing uh, power and the known object. But there is more than this in the case of a beautiful object. In this latter case, there's a proportion among the constituent elements of the known object and this proportion pleases the cognitive power in question because of the latter's own proportion among its constituent elements. There's a lot of proportion going on here. Yeah. Um, I'm relying in part here on a, the formulation is uh, from Gilson. He follows this up by claiming that beauty is therefore, and his, this is his quote, the cognition of a substantial similitude between two duly proportionate beings. Although I'm not convinced that this is right, still the Phaedrus looms back here. Right, the due proportion in the faculty, the due proportion in the thing. There's something that you recognize there that's here. That would be a fun topic, but I can't get into it. For St. Thomas, the fact that the beautiful most properly stands in relation to the cognitive power means that the beautiful pertains to formal causality. Because cognition comes about by assimilation of the knower and the known, 
and because assimilation is the informing of the cognitive power by the form apprehended by means of a likeness of the thing apprehended, and because such a likeness pertains to form, the beautiful properly belongs to the nature of formal causality. To sum up, St. Thomas argues from the effect of beautiful things, namely delight on the part of the cognitive power, to proportion as a constituent of the beautiful. In addition, he relates the beautiful to the cognitive power. It is indeed related to appetite, insofar as beautiful things please us, but properly it pertains to cognition, since beautiful things please us in the sheer apprehension of them. It is precisely this uh, order to the cognitive powers, this ordering, this relation. He uses the word ordo usually. Some people translate it as relation. That seems too weak to me. It's not just a relation. It's an, uh, an ordination. Oh, that has other connotations. This ordering to the cognitive powers that the beautiful adds to the good, um, that's precisely what it adds to the good. And it's in virtue of this that it belongs to the nature of formal causality. Probably you're all thinking, well, is there just one constituent of beauty? Aren't there others that we've heard of? There are. Due proportion is not the only constituent of beauty. Um, altogether, taking into account all the passages in which Thomas lists the constituents or requirements of beauty, he speaks of three such constituents. Due proportion, which he um, names either proportio, debita proportio, or consonantia. Wholeness, integritas or perfectio, and radiance, brightness, uh, splendor. It's really hard to translate. Claritas is the word in Latin. When we examine St. Thomas's examples for these three constituents, however, a fundamental distinction begins to appear, on the basis of which we must distinguish two different kinds of beauty, and thus two different conceptions of the constituents of beauty. In several texts, St. Thomas uses the example of a beautiful body to illustrate the constituents of beauty. The beauty of the body, he says, consists in one's having properly proportioned limbs, and he nicely adds, in both quantity and position, <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> and a brightness of proper coloring, proper color. In such texts, St. Thomas usually presupposes wholeness or integritas which he contrasts, at least in one text, with being broken or maimed. The word is diminuta, in virtue of which brokenness a thing is ugly rather than beautiful. But beauty, he says, does not belong only to bodies. Human actions can display spiritual beauty, according as they are, as, these are his words, well-proportioned according to the spiritual radiance of reason. That is, to the degree that they are in accord with right reason, Human actions are well-proportioned, and they share in the radiance of right reason. That's how I'm taking that. Now, it is clear, unfortunately, that not everybody is beautiful. Our own experience probably suggests this. Nor every human action beautiful in the sense in which St. Thomas understands beauty in these texts. Only certain bodies and certain human actions are beautiful. This conception of beauty is clearly not a transcendental conception if only for the simple reason that beauty in this sense cannot be predicated of all beings, since incomplete, maimed, sullied, or misshapen things lack one or several of these conditions or constituents of beauty. This conception of beauty that we've been elaborating 
is in fact a categorical or categorical conception. And we find confirmation of this when St. Thomas says in Prima Secundae in question 49, that beauty is a habit or a disposition and thus a kind of quality. Following other uh, interpreters, I will refer to this as a aesthetic beauty, um, even though aesthetic properly refers only to the sensible. Um, just uh, bear with me there. It's the common term to use, so I'll use it. Aesthetic beauty, though not limited to corporeal things, is limited to those things that are whole, duly proportioned, and resplendent in their accidental determinations, that is, according to quantity, position, action, etc. <clears throat> Standing in sharp contrast to such passages as these are those passages in which St. Thomas affirms that every being is beautiful. In his commentary on Dionysius in De Divinis Nominibus, Commentary on the Divine Names, St. Thomas seems clearly to follow Dionysius, who says that God is called supersubstantial beauty because he gives beauty to all created beings. That is, he causes radiance, claritas, and proportion to be in all created beings. God is the cause of radiance in created beings insofar as he gives to them the gift of his luminous radiance. Very poetic, he's commenting on Dionysius. What St. Thomas and Dionysius mean by this is the following, and this is explained later in the same uh, lecture of his, of his commentary. Every form through which a thing has essay, has existence, is a certain participation in the divine radiance. Through its very form, its very ratio, then, every individual thing is and is beautiful. Because in having, or rather in being constituted by that form, it exists and it shares in the divine claritas. This gives us a deeper understanding of the claim that the beautiful pertains to formal causality. Earlier, we saw that beauty consisted in a thing's being such as to please merely in being apprehended so that beauty is, properly speaking, ordered to the, to the apprehending power and thus belongs to the nature of formal causality. Now we see St. Thomas explicitly extending this to all beings. Beauty pertains to formal causality because all beings are beautiful precisely through their forms participating in the divine radiance, in virtue of which every being is pleasing in its mere apprehension. In addition to causing radiance in created beings, God also causes a twofold proportion or harmony in them. First, insofar as they are ordered to him as to their end. Second, insofar as they are ordered to one another. So, although wholeness is not mentioned in this context, and in fact, St. Thomas rarely includes it when discussing the constituents of beauty, uh, still, St. Thomas, following Dionysius, has nevertheless, nevertheless shown how everything participates in the beautiful, namely, in virtue of the fact that everything is given radiance in proportion by God himself. It is obvious that we are now in the presence of an understanding of beauty that is of a higher order than aesthetic beauty, namely what is often called transcendental beauty. Whereas the human body is aesthetically beautiful insofar as it is whole, well-proportioned in quantity and position, and brightly colored, the human body, and indeed everything, is transcendentally beautiful in being ordered to God and to other creatures, and in having a form that is itself a participation 
and God's radiance. Most important for our considerations, whereas not every being has aesthetic beauty, every being, even those that are aesthetically ugly, does have transcendental beauty. Every being through its form and its ordering to God and creatures, other creatures, is beautiful. Let me say a word about the relation between transcendental and aesthetic beauty. I can't go too far in this, but um, <clears throat> it seems to me there's an analogy with the good here. So just as even in its first actuality of being as good, secundum quid, so also it is beautiful in a certain way, that is, I think, transcendentally. And so something is transcendentally beautiful and good, secundum quid, insofar as it is in first act, that is, insofar as it is a being simply. But insofar as it has further actualities, further perfections that it ought to have, that thing is good simply, and I think you can say mutatis mutandis, it's beautiful aesthetically. Um, so at the most basic level, that of first act, that of first being, first essay, every being is said to be beautiful transcendentally and to be good relatively or secundum quid. This extension of beauty understood transcendentally to every being is further emphasized later in his commentary in Dionysius, where St. Thomas uh, says, following Dionysius, that the beautiful is convertible with the good. If the good extends to all beings, as we have seen, and if the beautiful is convertible with the good, then the beautiful likewise extends to all beings. With this connection of the beautiful and the good, we return to where we began with beauty, namely St. Thomas's description of beauty. Earlier, we saw that St. Thomas affirms that beauty adds to good a certain ordering to the cognitive power. What I had left out in that earlier discussion was the context for this description. Namely, it's uh, St. Thomas's affirmation that the beautiful and the good are the same in subject and differ only conceptually, or ratione. <clears throat> uh, it now behooves me to explain this, having kept you in the dark about that. I think for good reason, but you can object later if you think not. <clears throat> In those very same passages from the Summa that we considered earlier, in which St. Thomas describes the beautiful as that the very apprehension of which pleases, or as that which upon being apprehended pleases, St. Thomas begins his discussion with a broader claim about the beautiful and the good, namely that the beautiful and the good are the same in subject, but they differ conceptually. His statements and arguments regarding beauty are part of his substantiating this broader claim. In particular, his conclusion that the beautiful adds to the good and ordering to the cognitive power turns out to constitute the conceptual difference between the beautiful and the good. That is, whereas the good regards the appetite, since the good is that which pleases the appetite simpliciter, the beautiful regards the cognitive power, since the beautiful is that the apprehension of which pleases the appetite. And the beautiful differs from the good precisely in adding this ordering to the cognitive power. At a side note, <clears throat> St. Thomas says that this ordering of the beautiful to the cognitive power is the reason that only the most cognitive senses can perceive the beautiful. Uh, we speak of beautiful visible objects and beautiful sounds, but according to Thomas, we don't speak of beautiful tastes or odors, although Dr. George pointed out that in English we tend to, at least sometimes. At this point, there are many loose ends that it would, it would be tempting to try to tie up. For example, the way in which we apprehend transcendental beauty. It's, I find it fascinating. I don't understand that exactly. 
But for the purpose of this talk and for the sake of time, we must pass over these considerations or such considerations. It would be helpful, however, to draw together everything that has been said regarding beauty, looking back on what has been said from the vantage point of beauty in its transcendental sense, not aesthetic. Those things are beautiful, the very and mere apprehension of which pleases. Because the apprehending or cognitive powers take delight in what is duly proportioned, beauty consists in due proportion, to which St. Thomas adds radiance and sometimes wholeness. The reference of these constituents of beauty vary, in kind even, according as the beauty in question is aesthetic, whether corporeal or spiritual, or transcendental. Transcendental beauty consists in the things um, ordo or ordering to God and to other creatures and in the radiance of the form given it by God through which it exists and participates in God. Transcendental beauty then belongs to every being insofar as it exists since that through which it has being is also that through which it has beauty, namely its form. Understood in this manner, that is, as founded upon the form through which a thing exists, the beautiful is the same as the good, differing from it only conceptually. The good pertains to appetite, and therefore has the nature of an end. The beautiful adds to the good a certain ordering to the cognitive or apprehensive power, and has the nature, therefore, of a formal cause. Part three, is beauty a distinct transcendental? We saw in part one that for St. Thomas, whatever extends to every being by that very fact adds only conceptually to being, unless it's merely synonymous with being, in which case it adds nothing at all to being, and therefore is really identical with it merely conceptually distinct from it and convertible with it. In other words, whatever extends to every being is a transcendental. We've also seen that the beautiful, according to St. Thomas, extends to every being. All beings are and are beautiful through their form. Therefore, the beautiful adds only conceptually to being, unless perhaps beautiful is merely a synonym of being. But this can hardly be maintained, it seems to me. If the good adds something to being, and therefore cannot be considered a mere synonym of being, then the beautiful, which itself adds something to the good, certainly cannot be considered a mere synonym of being. Therefore, the beautiful must add something merely conceptual to being, and in virtue of this, is really identical with and convertible with being and with the other transcendentals. In a word, on St. Thomas's own account, it seems to me, the beautiful is a distinct transcendental. This means, of course, that the beautiful, according to our third element in part one, must occupy a place within the order of the transcendentals as they proceed from being. In virtue of its conceptual addition to the good, it appears that the beautiful should be placed last in the order of the transcendentals after the good, as presupposing all the other transcendentals. The beautiful is that which ends, being apprehended, verum, pleases. Bonum. That cute little correlation is not mine. It's um, from uh, Father Phelan. Phelan? Um, he correlates the elements of the definition of beauty with ends, verum, and bonum, and then with integritas, consonantia, and claritas. I'm not sure what the last correlation, but the first one seems right to me. But I can't get into it too much. 
But this position, that the beautiful is a distinct transcendental, occupying the final place in the order of the transcendentals, is subject to some noteworthy difficulties. First and most obvious is the textual objection. St. Thomas nowhere explicitly affirms that the beautiful is a distinct transcendental. His lists and his derivations of the transcendentals, even those that are exhaustive or seem exhaustive, never include the beautiful. And in his discussions of beauty, he never explicitly claims for it the status of a transcendental. Adding weight to this objection is the fact that St. Thomas speaks of beauty only in an incidental manner outside of the commentary in Dionysius, in which it can be argued his more extensive treatment of beauty is required by the nature of the task at hand, namely commenting on Dionysius. The true and the good, however, receive independent treatments. For example, in the commentary on the sentences, De Veritate, and the Summa. But the subject of beauty arises only in an ancillary fashion and then only in a truncated form, or perhaps in responding to an objection regarding the true or the good. So all of this seems to indicate that there are serious difficulties with affirming beauty to be a transcendental. This textual objection, however, is not a damning objection. For one thing, we are not justified in taking any of St. Thomas's lists or derivations of the transcendentals as exhaustive. If any one of them is exhaustive, it must be the derivation of De Veritate 1.1. In all other lists and derivations, four or fewer transcendentals are named. But in De Veritate 1.1, St. Thomas identifies six, the usual suspects, plus res and aliquid, thing and something. And here, he's borrowing from Avicenna there. So that's the most uh, extensive list. However, St. Thomas does not claim there that his list is exhaustive, nor does the language of his derivation compel us to conclude that it's exhaustive. Perhaps most significant in this regard, in a derivation of the transcendentals given later in the same work, De Veritate, 21.1, St. Thomas says that the conceptual additions to being that he lays out are the only possible conceptual additions. And I'm going to quote him here. That which is merely conceptual can only be twofold, namely negation and a certain kind of relation. And then, he, and then on that basis, he derives the transcendentals. So De Veritate 21.1 much more clearly suggests the exhaustiveness of its derivation than does De Veritate 1.1. But De Veritate 21.1 lists only four transcendentals while De Veritate 1.1 lists six. So the one that lists fewer transcendentals is much more clearly meant to be or seems to be taken as exhaustive. The one that lists six doesn't seem to be exhaustive. Put another way, if we apply the seemingly exhaustive principle of division that St. Thomas uses in the later De Veritate text to the derivation uh, in the earlier text, we would have to cut res from the list of transcendentals and perhaps aliquid, although you can argue for aliquid on other grounds. So is St. Thomas contradicting himself or changing his mind within the very same work, I might add? Uh, I think not. St. Thomas, throughout his writings, is clearly not concerned with maintaining uniformity among the lists of the transcendentals. In various early and late writings, he lists only the usual four, and in various other early and late writings, he affirms that res is a transcendental. He's not really concerned with a complete list. It must be granted that this answer does not address the entire objection. 
even though none of the lists or derivations of the transcendentals can be taken as exhaustive, there is still the brute fact that the beautiful never occurs in any lists or derivations of the transcendentals. And there's still the supporting fact that it only gets incidental treatment throughout St. Thomas's writings. The only answer to what remains of the objection, it seems to me, is to reiterate the first reply, that he's never concerned to give an exhaustive list, and to add that St. Thomas either was not so concerned with what constituted a transcendental, or he did not have a sufficiently developed account of beauty so as to address explicitly the question of beauty status as a distinct transcendental. It seems foolhardy to me to rely upon the absence of beauty from non-exhaustive lists of the transcendentals as damning evidence against the teaching of St. Thomas that it, that it is a distinct transcendental, um, especially given the generally ancillary treatment that St. Thomas gives to the transcendentals and his penchant for inconsistency in his lists of the transcendentals. Ultimately, these textual peculiarities are a double-edged sword. They can work both for and against the thesis that St. Thomas holds beauty to be a distinct transcendental. They don't work just one way. So it seems to me that it's better to attempt to explain Thomas's textual silence, so to speak, in other ways, rather than making it the determining factor regarding St. Thomas's teaching. The second group of difficulties to which our thesis is, sub is subject is doctrinal rather than textual in nature. First, shouldn't we consider beauty as a transcendental of the good, so to speak, rather than a transcendental of being? That is, as several scholars claim, the beautiful adds merely conceptually to the good, but this does not constitute an addition to being. This is a prominent objection. However, this objection proposes a false dichotomy. Adding merely conceptually to the good should not be set up against adding merely conceptually to being. For as we have seen, St. Thomas makes clear, this is De Veritate 21.3, that every transcendental other than being adds merely conceptually to the immediately prior transcendental, according to the order in which they follow from being. And it's precisely in adding to its prior transcendental that every other transcendental adds to being. Therefore, the fact that the beautiful adds merely conceptually to the good, rather than militating against being, its being a transcendental, in fact, is a point in favor of its being a transcendental. Second, one could enlarge upon a particular part of this prior objection and ask precisely in what way the beautiful adds to being. Meaning, what is it uh, that the beautiful adds to the good, or what, yeah, that the beautiful adds to the good and thus to being, that's not already included in the good and the true? The immediate answer, of course, is what St. Thomas repeatedly says. The beautiful adds to the good a certain ordering to the cognitive power. But according to the objection, the ordering to the cognitive power is precisely what the true adds to being. So it would seem that the beautiful is not at all different from the good. Meaning, since the good includes and presupposes the true, and the true adds to being the mode of relation to the cognitive power, the beautiful does not appear to add to being a distinct general mode of being that follows upon every being. Several things should be said in response to this objection. First, and most importantly for our consideration, St. Thomas, we have seen, insists, to the point of interrupting his commentary on Dionysius to make this point, that the beautiful is conceptually distinct from the good because it adds to the good a certain ordering to the cognitive power. And we have also seen that St. Thomas affirms that logically posterior transcendentals 
add to and presuppose logically prior transcendentals. So given these two facts, and barring any change of mind on St. Thomas's part, for which there's no evidence, we must presume that the addition that the beautiful makes to the good is not the addition that the true makes to being, for that would not be an addition at all. Since the true is contained within the good, that is, the good includes and presupposes the true, and since the beautiful adds something conceptual to the good, it must add something other than what the true adds to being. This means that there must be a distinction between what the true adds to being, what the beautiful adds to the good, if we are to assume consistency on St. Thomas's part. The only question that remains then is in what precisely consists this distinction between what the true adds and what the beautiful adds. That's the hard part. I will conclude this talk by sketching two possible answers to the question. The first of which has been suggested, but I think not satisfactorily worked out by several scholars. The first solution is the following. Whereas the good and the true each add a relation or ordering to a power of soul taken separately from the other powers, the beautiful adds a relation or ordering to the cognitive power and to the appetite, appetite simultaneously. In other words, the beautiful adds uniquely to being by adding an ordering to the two powers taken jointly. This suggestion does feel a bit contrived. Is adding the notion of jointness to two already added notions sufficient to make a new transcendental? Maybe. Uh, more importantly, though, the solution seems to grant that the ordering to the cognitive power that is added by the beautiful is the same as that which is added by the true. But this should not be granted, as we've seen. Uh, St. Thomas, going back to a Summa passage, the Prima Secunde passage, 27.1, speaks of the addition of the beautiful to the good as a certain ordering to the cognitive power. Quedam ordo ad vim cognoscitivam. Almost always, uh, when Thomas describes the true, he speaks of it as adding a relation to the intellect. Um, sometimes he speaks of it as adding a relation to cognition, cognitio. And on one occasion, he speaks of the true as, as um, relating to beings as cognitive, cognitiva. On the other hand, he always speaks of beauty as adding a certain relation to the vis cognoscitiva. And that, I take it from other passages in St. Thomas, means sense, senses and intellect taken together. Both uh, are under the umbrella of vis cognoscitiva. And beauty is always described in, uh, as ordered, adding an ordering to that power, whereas true is ordered to intellect usually. And I don't quite know how that's significant, but the fact seems significant to me. Either way, this is the most suitable point at which to begin crafting a solution, namely by affirming that the beautiful makes a unique addition to being and adding to the good a certain ordering to the vis cognoscitiva. What we must do, of course, is distinguish this addition from the addition made by the true. The true is being as related to intellect, as intelligible, as perfective of intellects through its species. The good is, in addition to the true, being as related to appetite or as appetible or as perfective of anything through its sheer existence or essay. The beautiful is, in addition to the true and the good, being as an end for cognitive beings, precisely in being apprehended. What I mean is this. With regard to cognitive beings, the true is being as apprehensible, the good is being as desirable upon being apprehended, and the beautiful is being as desirable in being apprehended. 
This harmonizes well with St. Thomas's position that something is beautiful precisely if and when it delights us upon becoming known to us. For this proposed addition of the beautiful to being encapsulates his statement that the beautiful is that the apprehension of which pleases. Now, this is, of course, barely a start of the solution and a halting one at that. There are, it seems to me, some difficulties with this solution, and there are certainly many things left to explain. Perhaps we can address these in a few minutes. They have really put me on the spot. <laughs> but let me first, in conclusion, make a final point. It seems to me that the task here is to understand thoroughly the principles and the fundamental positions of St. Thomas with regard to this question and realizing that his account requires fleshing out to rely on these principles and positions to develop a satisfactory account of the beautiful as a transcendental. Thank you. <laughs>